The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. I invite all of you to open up to James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verse 13 today in the context of this first chapter. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand because we've got one you can borrow. We've got, uh, looks like two up here in the front while you're turning there. And also on the back of the bulletin is an outline if you wanted to follow that, if that's helpful for you. So this will be about week four in the book of James. And as I said last week, verses 2 through 18 really deal with one topic um, and deal with one topic in a couple of different ways, very practically. Um, Several of you have shared that you're thankful we're going through the book of James. You've already been fed through the book of James, challenged. Uh, It's relevant to your life. You don't need to raise your hand, but did anybody have a trial this week? You don't need to raise your hand, but answer that in your own mind. Uh, I did. And no doubt you did as well. And that's the beauty of the Word of God. It's sufficiency. It is a dynamic living book. The Spirit of God uses it to feed our soul, but also to help us in life where we're at. And James 1 does that in terms of living life and facing life's trials. And that's really what life is made of, its trials. God knows that, and He addresses that issue for us to help us grow. That's really the theme of James chapter 1, 2 through 18. So follow along with me as I read uh, verse 2 up to verse 13, uh, where James starts out with this imperative or this command, Consider it all joy, my brethren, or consider it all joy, fellow believers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all people generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man or person expect that they will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded person, unstable in all of his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Just think about you know, Steve Jobs this week. Oh, what a great practical reminder from Scripture, which we'll have to contend with. Verse 11, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then today we're going to highlight this verse, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Wow, verse 13. That's an imperative. It is a command. It's, it's a jolt, really, in terms of the obligation that we as believers have to obey this command. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. One thing you should note there in verses 13 and 14 goes on, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Uh, the word tempted in the New American Standard that occurs in verse 13 three times, tempted, 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 and then once in verse 14, tempted, is really the same root or the same word that we see in verse 2. When it says, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. It's the same Greek word of the cognate, same root word. So when we address verse 2, I pointed out that that word, trial, temptation, it occurs all throughout the New Testament. It can either be positive or negative. It can be objective or subjective. It can be external or internal in terms of the trial or temptation. And what determines its meaning is the immediate context. And so that's what we've got going on here. The trials that James is talking about in verses 2 through 12 are an objective external nature that are general and universally confront everybody if you're a human living in this world. These are not necessarily, these aren't temptations to sin, being enticed to evil. These are just the trials of life. But then James makes a transition and changes the context and he personalizes it. 
And so that's why the New American Standard, I think justifiably so, translates pretty much the same word as tempted and not as trial. Because now, verses 13 to 18, he's talking about this word parasmos, the Greek word, in a new way. This is a, a different kind of trial. This is when the trial of life becomes personal and it becomes a temptation to evil. Because after all, the objective trials of life, say you're living in a bad economy, you're in, in a bad economic situation, and you're confronted with either a lack of job, a lack of work, a lack of opportunities, uh, you're pressed to pay your bills and you don't quite have enough money, that is a trial that is universal that confronts everybody at some point in life. It's neutral. It's a neutral trial. That's what uh, James is talking about, verses 2 to 12. But even that trial... We can respond one of two ways. We can respond to a trial the right way or the wrong way, can't we? And then that very neutral, objective, external trial can actually become a temptation for me, temptation to sin. So if I'm hard-pressed under uh, financially difficult economic times, I can respond one of two ways. When I find that I don't have enough money or resources, I can respond as a Christian in a godly manner, trusting God through the temptation, counting it all joy, knowing that God is totally sovereign. He's in control even of my financial hardship. And I'm just going to trust Him. I'm going to also search Scripture and see what He says to do in, in terms of dealing with that trial and addressing it head on, getting godly counsel, getting support from your local church, getting brothers and sisters to pray for you and also to be humbled and pray and evaluate my life before God and trusting Him, knowing that all things work together for good for those who love Him and clinging to that promise, knowing He's going to get me through this trial, knowing that no temptation or trial has overtaken me that isn't common to everybody else and God is faithful and He's going to see me through. He's going to allow me to stand up through this trial. That's a godly biblical response to that trial. Or the second response is being confronted with that financial hardship and then responding in the wrong way. And then it becomes an enticement to evil. I don't have the money I need. I don't have the resources. And so as a sinner, I don't do what God wants me to do or commands me to do in Scripture. And I resort to my own means or mechanisms or humanity or sin. And I go out and I steal the money that I think I need blatantly violating God's will. So you can have two people under the same circumstances of duress and they can respond two totally different ways. Out of obedience and trust or out of sin and turning that trial into a temptation by virtue of the way I responded. Uh, and so that's kind of the nuance of transition that James makes in verses 13 through 18. Now these are real personalized trials and even temptations that we face in life. And James hits us hard as believers with this command. Let no one say when you are in the midst of a trial that God was the one who tempted you to sin. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. One thing I was struck by this week, you know, James is a unique book. And I think if you're a Christian and you've read through the Bible, and especially you've read through the New Testament a few times, you're familiar enough with all the books of the New Testament, uh, many Christians would recognize that James is kind of unique for some reason. It's, it's different. It reads different. And that's why it has an appeal uh, in many respects for, for people. So there is a uniqueness about it. And one thing that I noticed that is very unique about the book of James is all these imperatives, these command, these direct commands to Christians that you will not find in the writings of the Apostle Paul, at least in terms of the way he writes it. As a matter of fact, in, in the, the Apostle Paul's 13 epistles, here was, he just kind of had a standard operating procedure and methodology of how he would write a book. Uh, he would spend, like in a book of Ephesians, he spent four entire chapters of just talking about doctrine and theology, laying the foundation of who you are in Christ. And it was in all these indicative statements of theological truth, and then you get all the way to chapter 4, verse 25, before you even see the first command in the book of Ephesians. And that's what Paul did. You read Philippians, Colossians, uh, Romans. He goes on for 11 chapters laying out theology and spiritual and biblical truth and believers' position in Christ. And then finally, in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, do this. So you got 11 chapters of just theology, indicatives, statements of truth, your identity in Christ, and then, boom, finally tells us what our obligations are in light of the spiritual truth in Romans chapter 12. And especially true in Ephesians for four chapters. And then verse 25 is the first imperative, the first command, the first obligation for the Christian. The first time you feel guilty when you're reading your Bible in that book. 
or you feel a sense of urgency and obligation before God. James is not like that. He says, hi, guys, bless you in the Lord. Boom, imperative is the first thing. That's how he starts out in verse two out of the gate. It's like, whoa, James, you didn't even give us any warning. And that's powerful. Consider it all joy. And that's that is a very challenging, startling command. Consider it all joy when you're in trials. So not only does he hit us with an imperative right out of the box, it's a it's a challenging imperative. It's like, you got to be kidding me because that is not easy to do. And then he goes on with all these other uh, commands. Verse five is another command. Uh, Ask God and another command in verse six, but ask God in faith. And then another command. Verse seven. Don't think this way. Rather, think the other way. Uh, verse and then finally, verse 13, we're already at our seventh imperative or command in the book of James. We're only on verse 13. So if you're kind of slouching over and feeling guilty and insufficient and wow and getting hit hard by the spirit of God and the scriptures of God, there's a reason for that is these demanding obligations, this hortatory approach that James has, these commanding, reminding the believer, the seasoned believer, the informed believer of their obligations to be doers of the word and not hearers only. That is one of the themes of the book of James. So we're confronted with another imperative in verse 13, and that's what we're going to highlight. Uh, And what I called this verse was, where is God in the trials? Where is he? Because that's a a question that we should ask when I'm in the midst of a trial. Where is God? What is my view of God? What is God doing in the midst of this trial? And God, for the believer, we know God uses trials. And he uses them for his purposes. And like I said, those two scenarios, it's just a matter of, for us, it's a matter of how we respond to the trial. It's not God's fault. It's how we respond to the trial. It's like the sun. The sun is the trial. And the same sun that melts the clay is the same sun that hardens. I mean, the same sun that melts the wax is the same sun that hardens the clay. That's the same with us. We are confronted with trials. How do we respond positively or negatively to the trials of life, trusting God? And James wants to help us respond in a godly manner, because after all, James has already told us two times in verse three. And in verse 12, that God is trying our faith, testing our faith, refining and pruning our faith, and even exposing our faith to show us or show other people whether it's real or not, whether it's a superficial faith, whether we're false professing Christians and not believers at all. God does that. He did that to the Israelites. He told them that in the, in the Pentateuch and also in Deuteronomy. I was testing you and I'm testing you to see your true love for me. So God does put trials in our life to test us, to prove us, to try us, to refine us, and sometimes to expose us. And I want you to look at Matthew. Before we delve in further to uh, James 1.13, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 13, because I do want to look at this one parable that Jesus told that's parallel to what we're talking about here, the trials of life and how people respond differently because... Uh, people's hearts are different. Some people are sensitive to the things of God and some people are hardened to the things of God. And that's really the theme of Matthew 13, verses 1 through 8 on this one parable that Jesus tells. Uh, Verse 3, Matthew 13, Jesus spoke many things to... It was a huge crowd of people, multitudes, hundreds, possibly thousands of people as He's teaching out there. And he spoke to the multitudes many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. Now what does a sower sow? He sows seeds. He plants them so that they will grow. So the seed is in this illustration, verses 4 through 8. The sower goes out and he plants seed in four different areas, four different kinds of soil it lands on. Verse 4, He sowed, uh, and he sowed, and some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate them up, snatched up the seeds, boom. They weren't able to get into the ground and grow. Seeds were gone. Verse 5 and 6. The second place where he planted seeds. And others, other seed fell upon rocky places. This was dirt filled with rocks. Not a good place to grow plants or a garden. Uh, And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, whoop, like a bean sprout. And because they had no depth of soil and their roots couldn't go down deep in the earth, they died. Verse 6. But when the sun had risen... They were scorched by the sun, and because they had no root, they withered away. So you've got two different soils that the seeds are going on. And then in verse 7, And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And then there's a fourth kind of soil, that's verse 8, And the others fell on the good soil. Good soil, 
by the way, these are four different kinds of people that hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and hear the word of God. Four different kinds of people that we just read. And the soil that it's landing on, that's the condition of people's hearts, either receptive to the things of God or hardened towards the things of God. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Verse 8, and others fell on the good soil. The good soil is not somebody good in and of themselves, but somebody who has positively responded to the graces of God. The preparation of the convicting work of the Spirit of God, like John 16 says. They responded positively to the Word of God when they heard it. They were convicted as a sinner and did respond in faith in a way that God requires. That's what it means by good soil. They weren't good in and of themselves. They responded the right way to the call of God, His Word, His Gospel. Verse 8. These are believers in verse 8. I would say, and I would contend that verses 1 through 7 are talking about unbelievers, ultimately in the end. Verse 8. And others fell on the good soil, yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. These people, they heard the Word of God. They heard the Gospel. Uh, by the way, in a parallel passage, Luke 8.11 says it was the Word of God. The seed is the Word of God that they heard. Matthew says in verse 19, it is the Word of the Kingdom. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what they heard. That is the seed. Three groups rejected it. Initially, some of them superficially received it, and then we, and in the end it turns out they didn't really believe it. And the last group, the fourth group, they believed the Word of God. They were born again, and they had fruit in their life to give evidence. Verse 18, Jesus interprets this parable for us in Matthew 13. Here then the parable of the sower with the seeds. Verse 19, when anyone hears the Word of the kingdom... That's the seed. Luke calls it the Word of God. When anyone hears the Word of the Kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away, that's Satan, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. That was the first category of people. They do not respond positively to the Gospel of Christ. Uh, Verse 20, the second group of people. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the Word... And immediately he receives it with joy. So it's a superficial excitement about Christianity or Jesus or the Bible, but it doesn't last. Verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arise, see, this is what I want to point out. Trials. You become a Christian, you embrace Christianity, and then the trials of life confront you. And if you don't have a real root in Jesus Christ, you're not truly born again and regenerate, but you just have a superficial profession The trials come, they will expose you as a phony. That's what happens. And people turn their back on Christ in hard times. Some do. That are not truly Christians. This happened to Judas. He had a superficial allegiance to Jesus. The hard times came. He abandoned Christ. He was never saved in the first place. Judas didn't lose his salvation. He was never saved. So verse 21, Yet he has no firm root in himself when affliction and persecution arises because of the word. Immediately he falls away. The third group of people, verse 22, and the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. See, he hears the gospel. Apparently believes it, makes a profession anyway outwardly. I'm a Christian. But then check this out. The trials of life come in the form of the worry of the world, the anxieties of life. That is another way of saying the trials of life that are common to all of us. Confront this person who at one time professed faith in Christ. But when the worries of the world overwhelm them, and also this, get this, the deceitfulness of riches chokes the Word and it becomes unfruitful. So that's the third category of people. And in verse, uh, the second category and the third category of people faced the trials of life. And the trials of life exposed where their heart really was at and their professed allegiance to Jesus wasn't real. And then verse 23, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man or the woman or the child who hears the word, the gospel. They understand it. They believe in a real, legitimate, sincere manner who indeed bear and they bear fruit because they've been born again uh, and they bring forth fruit, some a hundredfold, sixtyfold and thirtyfold. So that's what Jesus was saying there, reminding us the trials of life God uses to refine, strengthen, and sharpen the Christian and also to expose our weaknesses. And He also does it to refine and purify His church by exposing those who are not true believers. And that's why the Epistle of John said some people left the church because they were never of us in the first place. So let's go back to uh, the book of James now, chapter 1. As we look at these trials. So God uses these trials of life 
for our good and also for his glory. So the question that we want to think about in verse 13 is, here's the question, how do we respond to these trials when we're confronted with them? How did I respond this week in the midst of the trials I was confronted with? And what do I think about God in the midst of my trials? And how do I respond to God in the midst of trials? What do I think? What is my theology of God about trials in the midst of trials? James has brought that issue up two times already. I don't know if you've noticed in verses 2 all the way to verse 18, he's talking about trials and he's talking about temptations. And he follows up each scenario reminding the believer that what is paramount is their view of God in the midst of trials. Earlier we saw he's reminding believers when you're in the midst of a trial and asking God for wisdom, remember who God is when you go to him. He is a giving God. That's what he said. Verse 6, 5 and 6. What is your view of God? And he does the same thing here when you're facing trials, temptations. What is your view of God? The last week I had a, a brother, dear brother, come up and ask me uh, after the sermon. Actually, it was the next day. And they said, last week in the sermon or yesterday's sermon, did you say that you get paid to hear people's problems? And I said, yeah, I did. That was kind of awkward, wasn't it? Let me explain what I meant. He said, good, because I didn't know what you meant. Um, so I appreciate the question. That was a distilled, short crass way of saying that I'm a pastor for a living by vocation and that's what I do and I've been doing it for almost 20 years and and I've said it ever since we started the book of James that when you are a pastor by vocation by calling and hopefully by giftedness you are interfacing with people on a regular basis because that needs to be the calling of a, a shepherd a shepherd means you need to be with the sheep interacting with the sheep not at a distance, locking yourself away for 50 hours in a closet, studying your Bible because you don't want anything to do with the people. You've got to be down with the sheep. And so if you're a pastor, hopefully you embrace and welcome listening to people, counseling with people. In the two previous weeks I said uh, when you're counseling with people, really what you're usually talking about, you're talking about people's problems or you're talking about people's trials. As a matter of fact, I did that this week as a pastor talking with saints at GBF about trials in their life. I personally, I welcome that because one of the main reasons I welcome talking to people about their trials is because I'm excited about because I can tell them, you know what, God's word is sufficient. And if you're a believer, your relationship with Christ is sufficient. The spirit of God is sufficient. Prayer is sufficient. There is sufficiency in your relationship with Christ no matter what your trial is. And I just have great joy in showing them in the word. Here's what God says. And so I welcome it. Just so you know, those of you that go to GBF, uh, I like hearing people's trials, problems. So anyway, that was uh, not stated the best way. But uh, the point being, what I was trying to point out is that I've been hearing, uh, I've been doing a lot of counseling. I hear a lot of people's trials. Uh, and every once in a while, you'll meet a Christian or talk to a Christian, and that's all they ever talk about is their problems or their trials. And as a matter of fact, many of you have come to me at times and said, well, I'm meeting with brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. And every time I meet with them, all they talk about are their problems and they're always negative and it's wearing me down. What should I do, Pastor Cliff? And I've said, well, that's common. And what you need to do when a Christian is just so myopic and focused only on their problems, we need to do what James says. James keeps trying to lift, lift our eyes off of our trials and offer self to God. What is your view of God, your theology of God, the promises of God? That's what you need to do in counseling. And that's what you need to do when you're talking to a brother or sister who has this myopic mindset, self-focused, self-centered. And I was about six weeks ago, I had, there's a dear brother I know who, he's a believer, a wonderful believer, and he doesn't live in this state. And the only time I hear from him usually is when he's got problems. Because he calls me because he, he knows that I believe God is sufficient and the Word of God has answers to his problems and trials. So he called me about six weeks. Life was hard. He was down and out. He was at the end of his rope. He was going to get uh, booted out of his housing situation. He was on the brink of either losing his job and not getting enough hours to pay his bills. I mean, it was just a horrible scenario. And he had no end in sight. So I tried to encourage him from Scripture. Uh, he has Matthew 6 memorized. And I said, what does Matthew 6 say? What did Jesus say? Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Right? Do you believe that? Yes, I do. So I was encouraging him in the Word. Then I got some phone calls from other people who know this brother who are not believers, very concerned about him. And they called me and were saying, did you know that uh, so-and-so is almost out of work and they don't have a place to live and doesn't know where he's going to be in a month? And they were incredibly concerned. They were not believers and they didn't think there was a solution and they wanted me to fix it practically. So I went back to the brother and I said, did you know that these people you know are calling me? They're aware of your problem. So you've been talking to them apparently. 
I said, yeah, I have. Well, they love you. They're concerned about you, but they're not Christians. And they're calling me concerned about you. And you know what they think? They think you don't have any solutions, you don't have any hope, and that the God and Jesus you've been talking about for 15 years isn't going to meet your needs. They are in dire straits on your behalf. They are under duress on your behalf. They're unbelievers. So what do you think? Do you just tell them the negative things? And then he admitted, yeah, that's all I've been telling them is my problems. And I said, do you see how this hinders your testimony to these unbelievers about God's sufficiency, caring for you and providing for you? He said, yeah, I do. Thanks for pointing that out. He said, what should I do? And I said, well, here's what you need to do. You need to trust God. And I gave him a strategy. And you need to go back to uh, these people and tell them that you've got a plan. You're, uh, it's going to work out, whatever, blah, blah, blah. We talked about it. And like a week later, he uh, got more hours at work. So he was able to make enough money to pay all of his bills. He got a new place to live from a brother at his church that was perfect. And, uh, so, and I talked to him about two weeks ago, and life was wonderful and rosy. And so he did exactly what I asked him to do. He went back to the unbelievers and told them all this good news of how his God had provided. It was awesome. And so it was a great learning lesson for him that in the future he's got to be careful and watch his testimony when he is in trials, especially how he reflects that to unbelievers because they don't have the frame of reference to trust the living God that we do. So his faith literally was on the line. So, uh, But that's what I want to get to here is what is your view of God? So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, three things I want to highlight, and that's what James gives us, is three things we need to consider about the character of God, the nature of God in relation to our trials and the problems of life. Uh, point number one, believers should never accuse God of tempting them. Believers should never accuse God of tempting them. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted or in a trial. By the way, I think these are now turning into solicitations to evil, being enticed by sin. We know that from the context following. So say you fall into a sin and you keep committing the same sin over and over again. And you can get frustrated by that, right? Sometimes the temptation is to blame the temptation on God. And James knows that. He knows we're weak. He knows we're frail. James probably struggled with this himself. And he's reminding believers, point number one, when you're in the midst of a trial, a hard time in life, you fall into a temptation, do not blame it on God. You cannot accuse God of putting you in this position. How did I get into this position? God, you did this. No, he didn't. A Christian cannot talk like that. James is clear about that. Let no one say, and he says specifically no one. What he means is let no, not one single Christian or believer ever blame God for the temptation that they find themselves in. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So believers should never accuse God of tempting them. Uh, here are things maybe that come to our mind or questions we ask or things we say about God or things I've heard over the years, where even believers will say these kind of things about God because they're frustrated thinking God isn't answering their prayers, God isn't meeting their needs, uh, God isn't getting them through the trial, and they literally think the following things. These are from Christians. God is punishing me with this trial. God is getting back at me with this trial. I have this trial because God is getting back at me. That is not true. That is not true. Or some believers might think, well, God's mad at me right now. No. God, all, of it, all the wrath and anger of God was satisfied at the cross of Jesus Christ when Jesus died as your substitute. He is not mad at you. Now, Hebrews 12 says that the Father who loves us disciplines His children. It doesn't say when God's mad at you, He disciplines you. It says when God loves you, He disciplines you as one of His children. So to think that, well, God's mad at me right now and that's why I have this trial. Wrong thinking. So when you're talking to a fellow believer... And they use this terminology, God's mad at me, God's punishing me with His trial. You've got to tell them emphatically and just read James 1.13. Let no one say that they are being tempted by God. God does not do that. God is better than that. Or some, some might think that God does not care. Yeah, He does. That's, that is a lie. That is a satanic lie. God does care. We know He cares. Uh, God made me this way. God made me defective. No, no, He didn't. Yeah, we're under the curse of sin, but if you've been born again, you've been regenerated and you have the Spirit of God who lives in you, the same Spirit of God who created the world out of nothing and who rose Jesus from the dead. You have supernatural, eternal, unbelievable power resident in you. God does care. God didn't make me this way. Uh, they might say, well, God is distant. God is aloof. No, God is 
never leaves us or forsake us. Uh, God is stern. He's tight-fisted. He's like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge who had that employee. who, And the employee put in all the legitimate hours. And it, when it was payday, Ebenezer paid him what he was doing, but he didn't want to let go of the money that the guy deserved. Some think God is that way at times. God is stern. He's tight-fisted. No, He's not. He's a giving God. That's how He was described in James 1, 5, and 6. He's a giving God, a good and gracious, beneficent God. Or just strictly God is tempting me. No, He's not. God doesn't tempt anybody. Or some people might think God's not in total control. God, Satan has overpowered God in this situation. No, He hasn't. So we've got to correct first and foremost our thinking about God in times of hardship and trial. So I would ask you, and I was had to... Uh, remind myself this week, what is my view of God in the midst of trials? Do I have right thinking about my God, my Savior? Uh, just a couple of subpoints to that. Believers should never accuse God of tempting them. But we don't just dismiss that question. It's a, it's a legitimate question. Where is God in the midst of temptation? How does He relate to it? That's why I put there that believers can wrestle with God in prayer. Can a believer ask God why about a trial? Do you think? It's a yes or no question. Yes, right? And we know that from all the great saints in the Scripture, especially in the Psalms. You've got these psalmists who love God and uh, follow God, and they are asking why in the midst of trials. They're grappling with God. They're wrestling God with God in prayer. They're not being blasphemous, but they're asking why. They're showing their humanity and their frailty and their finite nature, their true struggle. And they wrestle with God in prayer. That's legitimate. To wrestle with Him. He wants us to lean on Him and wrestle and Find solutions and answers in Him and His Word. Uh, and then I also put there, even though we can wrestle with God in prayer, we should never impugn God's character. That is blasphemy. So we can't cross the line. We can't impugn God's character or His name. And that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't uh, misuse God's name. That means don't misrepresent God, how you talk about Him, how you think about Him. He is a holy, holy, holy God. So believers should never impugn or undermine or question the very nature and character of God that He is a giving God. He is a good God. He is a gracious God. And I understand during the times of hardship and trial, we are it's hard to control our thinking, isn't it? I know there are times in my 25-year walk of faith where I have had questions about my faith, about the Bible, and about God. And it's interesting when you talk to other believers when asking them how they struggle in their thinking. And people struggle in different ways in terms of temptation. So we've got to guard against that. We can't undermine God's character. So believers should never accuse God of tempting them. Let's go on to point number two as James goes on. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For and the reason, well, first reason why we shouldn't say that, because God can't be tempted by evil. Believers need to remember that God cannot be tempted by evil. It is evil is impervious to his nature. Because as I said in the next point, God is perfectly holy. Isaiah said he is holy, holy, holy. Holy is an attribute of God that defines his very character, his essential inherent nature. The very essence of God is that he is holy. What is holiness? It is perfection. It is sinlessness. It is purity. It's not only being set apart from sin. It is a being a God who can't tolerate sin. It is a God who must punish sin and deal with it. And that is God. God is perfect. Holiness without sin. Can't tolerate sin. Must punish sin. Not only is He holy, He's holy three times over. Holy, holy, holy. That is emphatically saying that is the very essence and nature. Well, the greatest attribute of God is His very holiness. He has nothing to do with evil. He is impervious to evil. He is not susceptible or vulnerable to evil. The devil is not his equal. The, the devil is down here. God is totally sovereign in control of all things. God knows there is evil. God allows evil. God controls evil. God will totally eliminate evil someday for his good pleasure and for our good as well. Believers need to remember that God cannot be tempted. He cannot be tempted. That's just an emphatic declaratory statement on the part of James. There's no argument about it. But what if? Like the people who like to be theoretical with the questions, asking all the time like the Pharisees. But what if? But what about? No, what James said. God cannot be tempted with evil. Period. One of the reasons that God can't be tempted with evil is, oh, and 1 John is a great passage uh, where it says in 1 John 1.5, the very nature of God, that God is light. 
God is light. He is purity. And in Him there is no darkness at all. There is no sin whatsoever. Look at Habakkuk 1.13 in the Old Testament. A great passage about in the middle of your Bible with all those uh, small, what we call the minor prophets, 12 of them. And just before the end of the Old Testament, before Matthew, about five books back, you got Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet of God. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, Habakkuk, Habakkuk is asking God why, and he's wrestling with God. He's even questioning God. He's struggling. He's having a hard time. Verse 2, How long, O Lord? He's questioning God. He's wrestling in prayer. Well, he comes around. God answers his prayer, and he doesn't lose faith. He's enlightened. He's illuminated by God and God's truth. Then he has a balanced perspective about who God is and what God can do. Verse 12, he calls God the Holy One. And look at this great statement in verse 13 of Habakkuk 1. He's talking to God. God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. God, your eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. You can't tolerate evil. Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil. And thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. You can't even look upon evil. Uh, So we can't ever associate any kind of evil or vulnerability on the part of God. Um, So going back to the book of James, believers need to remember that God cannot be tempted by evil. It's It's adverse to His very nature. And one of the reasons that God... Uh, can't be tempted by evil was that next point is that God is immutable. That means He can't change. God never changes. To say that, and that's First uh, Timothy one seventeen that calls God the eternal God or the God of the ages immutable, unchanging. He's an unchanging God. Like all the other gods of false religions of the world, they're changing. They're growing and getting better. Did you know that the God of Mormonism is growing and getting better? The God of Islam is has, he changes, uh, and the gods of of Rome and Greece in the days of James. They had these fictitious gods that they served and made up in their mind. And those gods were fickle and capricious and whimsical and growing and changing and just glorified human beings. And James is saying, no, the true God is not like that. He's immutable. He doesn't change. God is totally unchanging. He is holy, holy, holy. He will always be holy, holy, holy. He'll never be anything different than that. The God of the universe, He's not growing. He's not learning. He's not becoming better or improving. He's already perfect. That's what the fact that it means that God is immutable. He's unchangeable. He doesn't change in His nature. So He always has the same view regarding evil and temptation. He has nothing to do with it. Totally outside of Himself. And what's important also to point out is because Jesus is God, these things are also true about Jesus. You could say the same thing uh, where it says that God, uh, point number one, Not just God the Father. Believers should never accuse God of tempting them. Believers should never accuse Jesus of tempting them. Point number two, believers need to remember that God cannot be tempted. Believers also need to remember that Jesus cannot be tempted. I need to explain that. Because Matthew 4, 1 says Jesus was led by the Spirit of God out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That's a fun theological debate that theologians have been talking about for 2,000 years. Could Jesus in His humanity as the God-man, could He have been tempted? Was He really tempted? And I would say, well, Jesus is God, and this Scripture says that God cannot be tempted. But Matthew 4, 1 says that Jesus went into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And actually, there's two things going on there. Uh, Actually, the Spirit of God led Jesus into the desert to be tempted or actually tried And then what the devil did is he tried to entice Jesus to sin. So we could say, yes, Jesus was tempted by the devil, but Jesus was never enticed at all. There was no appeal whatsoever to sin in the very nature of Jesus because Jesus is God. He was not enticed one iota. Was he tempted by the devil? Uh, Yes, he was. That was the devil trying to trick him. Was he enticed by the evil Things that uh, the devil was waving out there in front of Jesus? Absolutely not. He was not enticed whatsoever because he was the God-man, God in the flesh. God cannot be enticed to do evil. It did not appeal to him whatsoever. Jesus, as well as the Father, is holy, holy, holy. And he is unchanging. So Jesus was tested by the Spirit, but he was tempted by the devil. And Jesus had nothing to do with that. And that's the comfort of the book of Hebrews where it talks about Jesus as our high priest who was tempted in all ways such as we are. What that, does, that doesn't mean that Jesus was enticed to sin in all the ways that we are. 
Jesus was tempted. He was confronted with every conceivable situation that you could think about in life so that he can identify with us as our high priest. In other words, there's never been a hardship or a situation that you have been in that Jesus was not in when he was in the flesh. He faced it all. He faced homelessness. He faced with being out money. He faced uh, hardship. He faced family rejection. He faced isolation and hatred from people. He faced physical torment. Every conceivable trial, temptation that we are confronted with, Jesus faced it. He was never enticed by it. He overcame it because He is the God-man and He overcame it for God's glory, for our good, so that He could sympathize with us, as Hebrew says, as our great high priest. A very personal Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. Never enticed by evil. So, this has to do with God's very nature. Believers need to remember that God cannot be tempted or enticed by evil, which takes us to the last part of verse 13 of our view about God, and that's Believers need to remember that God never tempts anyone. Really, God never entices anyone to evil. So there's a distinction of what we're talking about. Does God put us in trials? Yes. God allows us to go through trials? Yes. Does God entice us to sin? No. Two totally different issues. And sometimes people use the same word, tempt or trial, and confuse those two issues. So what James is talking about, 13 through 18, uh, is that God never entices a believer to sin. Never. As a matter of fact, He wants to do just the opposite because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 6 when we pray. When we pray to God every single day, daily we need to be pleading with God, God, deliver me from evil. God doesn't want to entice us to evil. He wants to protect us from evil. Hence the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. God, protect me from evil. God will answer that prayer. So a couple of corollary truths there. God doesn't tempt or entice anybody to sin, but He does put us through trials, doesn't He? And we talked about that earlier in Hebrews 12. You can read that whole section, 6 through 17, where the author of Hebrews talks about how God does bring trials into our life. He does that for discipline, for the children that He loves to help them grow and bear fruit in their life. So He does put us through trials. And then... A reminder, He never entices us to sin. He never entices us to do evil. And we're going to look more about that next week in the following verses when it talks about personal temptation and why we fall into sin. And man, where did this come from? Do you ever fall into a sin and you're just like, wow, where did that come from? I didn't see that one coming. What was the origin of that? What was that all about? And then James answers that question for us next week regarding sin. But here, the emphasis is on God's character. God never entices us to sin. I put Psalm 145.9, but I could have put about 150 other verses out of Psalms where it just says, God is good. The Lord is good. And a good God does not entice His children to sin. He's not trying to trick us. God doesn't do that. Pulling the mat out from underneath us. God doesn't do that. He's a good God. He's a giving God. A gracious, merciful, wonderful, personal, intimate, loving Savior. And that needs to be dominating our thinking as we're going through the trials and as we get out of the trials and as we look back in life on the trials and we interpret that in hindsight through the grid of Scripture with a proper view of God. Oh, that's what God was doing. Oh, that's what God was doing. You know, sometimes you won't be able to interpret or see what God was doing until long after the trial is over. Uh, we went to the Nank conference this week. Some folks here from GBF, NANC is National Association of Neuthetic Counseling, which means the National Association of Biblical or Scriptural Counseling. And one of the days, uh, me, my wife, Debbie, Scott, and Mary, we were able to have lunch with uh, a believer, dear brother in the Lord from a previous church uh, back in San Antonio. I hadn't seen him in six years, I think. The last time I saw him, I was at his wedding in Southern California. He's now 30 years old, lives here in California. And he's got a two-year-old boy and a 14-month-old sweet little girl that they adopted from the Congo. And we're having dinner and just a wonderful wife and a great marriage and go to a fantastic church. And they were just as delightful as could be. And, and they were just enjoying the joy of life. And the whole time I'm sitting across the table thinking, wow, this is awesome. God, you are amazing. You are so sufficient. James 1 is true. You got these two through the greatest trial of their life. When six years ago, uh, his name's Matthew, 
he lived in Texas at the time, and he was going to meet, rendezvous with his parents, who were godly Christians, about 50 years old, and his two sisters, who were, one was in college and one was a senior in high school. Two, he loved his sisters, they were believers, uh, they used to be, they were t- three of the godliest teenagers I knew when I was a youth pastor in Texas. Just this awesome, godly family. And they were going to meet each other uh, for vacation, and on the way, the family, the mom, dad, and the two sisters got killed in a head-on car accident going to meet Matthew. And it was, it was devastating. Um, and I haven't talked to him since then. So to sit there and just see what God has done was awesome. And I talked to Matthew, and he, he's doing well. There are still, the, the wounds are still sensitive, but he's got joy in God, joy in Christ. And his Christian faith has been validated by this whole experience. It's awesome. I mean, and I'm thinking, wow, my problems are pretty pathetic, petty. And look at Matthew's response to this tragedy in life. Because Matthew believed these things and he knew they were real. Just an awesome testimony for all of us as we were sitting there watching him and his wife. Well, with that, let's go ahead and close. And just some practical reminders in light of the truths we're learning uh, about trials. Because let me warn you, you're going to face trials this week. Some you don't even know about. They're a-coming. Some might startle you or capture you from behind. So let's get ready. Let's get our minds ready. Keep the following things in mind. God allows us to go through trials. But God controls the trials. Isn't that good news? God controls the trials. It gets better. Listen to this. This is a theology of trials about God. No trial happens apart from God's knowledge of that trial, His approval of that trial, His control of that trial, and... It always serves His purpose. It's four key things. I'm going to say it again. No trial happens in our life, number one, first, without God's knowledge. In other words, uh, He knows it's coming. He's omniscient. Secondly, so He, he knows, oh, here comes Satan. God, our God is aware of that. Isn't that good news? Nothing catches Him by surprise. Well, not only does God know about it ahead of time, He allows it. He approves it. So, oh, here comes Satan. And Satan has to get permission from God. Isn't that encouraging? Nothing happens apart from God's approval. So nothing happens apart from His knowledge. Nothing happens apart from God's approval. Third, nothing happens apart from God's control. Because theoretically, say, God says, oh, here comes Satan. Oh, I guess I'll let him do this. And then what if God didn't have the ability to totally control Satan, the the trials itself, and the very consequences of the trial that are yet unknown? Well, God has total control. So He has knowledge of the trial, He approves the trial, and He has total control of the trial. And then finally... God allows that trial with knowledge and approval, with total control, and it always serves His perfect purpose and our good. That is awesome. Uh, A couple other questions as we close. What is your view of God? What is your view of God? What do people say about me? Jesus asked His disciples in Matthew 16.3. A pastor told me this about 10 years ago, and I never forgot it. He said, when you're in a trial, you should ask this question, what is God teaching me? It's real simple, but it's profound. It takes humility, doesn't it, in the midst of a trial, frustration to just stop and, okay, God, what are you, what are you teaching me? What is God teaching me? Or the, a similar related question is, what am I learning through this? I'm in a trial. What is God teaching me? What am I learning? One commentator this week I was reading, he said, if you don't ask those two questions, you don't even think about those two questions, God might just keep the trial going until you get the message. So we better wake up. And ask, God, okay, what are you teaching? Okay, I'm ready to learn now. I will sit down and be good. Well, that's what God's doing. What's God teaching me? What am I learning? And then I want to close with this. If I want you to look at it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 And I know this has ministered to the souls of many saints through the ages. Uh, just one verse. So powerful. Comforting. So hopefully maybe this will help you this week if, if you're dealing with the trial. Because it's so comprehensive in all the components of it. It deals with us. It deals with the uh, temptation. It deals with God, His character. It deals deals with not just the trial, but the end result, the good news. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Paul says, no temptation, no trial has has overtaken you. (laughs) Literally, no temptation has been sprung on you. Surprise! No temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such is common to man. So 
doesn't matter what trial you're going through. Somebody else has been through it before you. They have paved the way for you. And we know Jesus has paved the way because He's been through that trial. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful. Huge. God is faithful. If you're one of His children, He loves you. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's almost hard to believe, that phrase. I can't handle it, God. And God says, yeah, you can. You just don't know you can't handle it. Or you can handle it. And so that's the teaching lesson. One of the things God wants to teach us in a trial is He wants to show us that we can handle it. Because we are inclination to say, no, I can't handle it. No, yeah, you can handle it. How do I know? Because God said so. He is faithful. He's going to actually help you, me, handle it as a believer. So God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted or go through trials beyond what we are able to deal with. But with that temptation, He will provide the way of escape. That's the good news. There's an end to this thing. There's an end of the road. There's a light at the end of the tunnel in order that you may be able to endure it. So God actually wants to sustain you through the trial. And the way God sustains us through the trial is He gives us hope, letting us know that He's faithful and there is an end. And that way we can endure while we're in the midst of it. And so I, I pray that you take comfort from that truth as no doubt many of you, many of us, are in the midst of a trial right now. We need to cling to that wonderful truth. Let's go ahead and go to this good, giving God that we know and that we love through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for our time together as saints, uh, together as a local church, a local body, gathering in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, Your blessed Son, Lord Jesus, thank You for living Your perfect life, for dying on the cross willingly, for taking the punishment of Almighty God the Father on Yourself, being our substitute. Thank You for conquering sin and death by rising again from the dead. And we thank You that You reign on high. And we can come to You at any time, praying to You, asking You for wisdom, crying out to You, seeking Your sympathy as a faithful high priest. And God, minister to us in a real intimate and personal way this week as we deal with trials. Help us to have a godly mindset as we take each step, trusting you're going to lead us every step of the way. We thank you. We commit it all to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.